This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The U.S. is backing out of the Paris Climate Accord, but at least nine Colorado mayors have pledged to uphold the deal. Today, we'll consider what that means. Matt Applebaum is a Boulder City Councilman and former mayor. He was part of the 2015 Paris Talks. And Amy Oliver Cook directs the Energy Policy Center at the Independence Institute. The Denver think tank advocates for limited government. Cook was also on President Trump's transition team specifically for the Environmental Protection Agency. They spoke with Ryan Warner. Matt, what do you think the impact of the president's decision to withdraw will be on Colorado, maybe even specifically on Boulder? Well, I think we need to distinguish the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement from some more practical things that are going on in the administration. It is a big deal that the withdrawal happened. There's no question in terms of our international standing, in terms of our working with other countries around the world. It's from our perspective, and I think from Colorado's perspective, very bad that we will not be part of that international effort on climate change, which not only is essential from an environmental perspective, but also has huge rewards economically. Um, But just quickly, I'd like to suggest that while our eyes are on the climate accords, the Paris Climate Agreement, really what's more important from a practical standpoint in the U.S. and in Colorado is what's happening at the EPA, what's happening at the Department of Energy, what's happening at the Department of Interior, and the, the attacks on environmental protections and our energy efforts over the next several years. That's where the action really is. The climate accords are important, but it's that implementation level which happens at the administration through those agencies that's really of critical importance to this state. I'll say that uh, President Trump and his proposed budget, which obviously has to be approved by Congress, uh, has recommended cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency budget estimated at around 30 percent. Amy, how do you see this withdrawal and its effect on Colorado? And I would say federal laboratories like NREL, the Renewable Energy Lab, substantial slashing of their budget as well. Amy, your take. The great thing about the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Treaty is that I'm so thrilled to see states embracing federalism. States can still lead the way should they choose to do so. And in Colorado, we've already been doing it by embracing innovation and technology rather than onerous regulation. This is actually liberating. We don't have to look at regulation for cleaner emissions. We're going to look at innovation and technology, which will ultimately lead to cleaner a cleaner environment and lower energy costs. I cannot see how raising the cost of electricity or embracing industrial wind is somehow the answer for a cleaner environment. So this is actually great news for Colorado. What do you base the assertion on that uh, electricity prices would necessarily go up? Uh, Hasn't renewable energy been competitive in some regards with uh, fossil fuels? Renewable energy, mostly industrial wind, runs on subsidies. It is not competitive without subsidies. 
The price of electricity in Colorado over the last decade plus has gone up 67%. Under the Paris Climate Treaty, according to the Heritage Foundation and others, the price of electricity would have gone up again, even more, and we would have taken actually spending you know, real dollars out of consumers' pockets. That is not the way to a cleaner environment. That figure, 67 percent increase in electric rates in Colorado, what's the source on that? That is actually our source, and it's based on information we obtain from the Energy Information Administration. Matt, what would you say to what you hear there? So uh, I guess first to the point of states then embracing federalism. This allows uh, localities, if they choose to do so, like your own community, Boulder, to flourish in the renewable energy space if they so desire? Well, up to a point. Remember, we're controlled by a regulated monopoly. We do not have any options as to what energy we procure. Nobody in Colorado has any options. You are owned by your energy provider, in our case, by a investor-owned utility. So there is a huge amount of government regulation that we would love to get rid of. Here's a place where we agree with the conservative side. Let's open it up to competition. Let's get rid of the monopolies, especially the vertically integrated monopolies. Let's let the competitive marketplace do its magic. Because, in fact, renewables are every bit competitive now. It's not about their subsidies. And if it is somewhat based on their subsidies, tell you what, let's get rid of all the subsidies on fossil fuels, which are gigantic. They're mammoth, billions, trillions of dollars over the many years. Let's have an even playing field, and we will see that the competitive marketplace moves rapidly towards renewables because they are cheaper in the long run. As for the costs going up, I have no doubt the costs have gone up, as have Excel's profits. But that's happened during a time when we've been 60 and 70 percent dependent on coal, not renewables, coal, with most of the rest of it being natural gas. And the prices have gone up because coal is an unsustainable resource and the prices are going up. So you've kind of hit on some of the problems. You've just come up with the wrong solutions. Finally, in terms of federalism, Yes, it is nice that the states can do some of the work on their own, but, and it's a big but, you sometimes among the various states have a race to the bottom, a race to the cheapest, no matter how much you're polluting the atmosphere and how much downstream disaster you're causing with climate change. And since we allocate no cost to climate change and the immense cost it's going to take us to deal with the impacts of climate change right here in Colorado. We're seeing it every week, every year. Since we allocate no cost to that, it's a free game. So, okay, let's go to a competitive marketplace, but let's allocate costs fairly. And there are costs to CO emissions that need to be put into the uh, calculation here. And then we'll see what people choose. And I guarantee you, that what people will choose will be renewables because they will be massively less expensive environmentally and economically. Let me just say that Excel Energy, the state's largest utility, has issued a statement in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement, which actually takes some years to withdraw from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote, Excel Energy's clean energy efforts 
reflect the goals and interests of the states and customers we serve, so our plans are not impacted by U.S. participation in the Paris Accord. Uh, This goes on to say that Excel is on a path to reduce carbon emissions 45 percent by 2021, well ahead of the U.S. Paris commitment. Uh, Amy, you, you talked about states getting to pursue different energy portfolios if they choose to do so. Is it um, a, a bit strange for states to go it alone when this is really a, a global issue, climate change, and virtually every other country on the face of the planet has signed on to this deal? Uh, climate, carbon, methane, these things don't uh, obey borders. Let's- Well, let's not confuse going it alone with leading through innovation and technology. I mean, we will lead not by signing on to an unratified treaty. We will lead through innovation and technology as we always have. So the idea that we would go it alone, yeah, we're going to allow, we're going to bring everybody else along by introducing the technology that will make for a cleaner environment. Wouldn't that kind of innovative thinking around technology benefit from, you know, a global brain and the relationships inherent in a global treaty? But there's nothing to stop from having that. What, what is an unratified treaty? What is one way or the other? We still are involved in a global community. It doesn't, it doesn't, we didn't withdraw from a global community. We withdrew from an unratified treaty. There is something else I would like to point out, though. No. I do agree with uh, with uh, Mr. Applebaum about, uh, listen, I would love nothing more than consumer choice in the state of Colorado or any place. I don't like monopoly utilities, and he's absolutely right. Ratepayers should be in charge of their own electricity, and it will lead to a cleaner environment, including things like battery storage and being able to generate electricity within your own home. I am right there with them. I just don't think the state ought to mandate it. However, I do think they ought to relax regulations. I worked with Senator Fenberg on a bill that would have allowed Mm -hmm. for storage. So I'm right there with him. The other thing about carbon, we also have to look at the benefits of carbon. We don't, we talk about the cost of them all the time, but hydrocarbons have allowed for the strongest economy, have raised our quality of life by all measurements. We live longer. People, if you use electricity, the more access you have to affordable power, and that is mostly hydrocarbons, the higher your level of educational attainment, the longer um, your life expectancy, your quality of life goes up. All of that is attributable to hydrocarbons. So, so is there a cost? Yes. Is there a benefit? Yes. There are trade-offs so, Ryan, in let, all let me, forms let, let me, let me of, of power. Go let ahead. me reply to a few of those before I forget them all. Yeah, so, so in, Matt, in Matt no Applebaum is, it, it, let me just interject that that's Matt Applebaum. He's former uh, mayor of Boulder, now a city council person there. And you've also been hearing Amy Oliver Cook, who specializes in energy at the free market think tank, the Independence Institute. And, and go ahead, Matt. Yeah, well, I, it doesn't actually surprise me. And I'm glad we agree on, on the competition because I, I thought we would. But nobody's suggesting that having energy available is is a bad thing. Of course, it's a good thing. But we live in a world right now where climate change is the single most pressing problem that we have. It's going to make massive differences right here in Colorado with water supply and the ski industry and being able to grow things and diseases and 
you know, uh, bugs being around and so on. This will change people's lives enormously. And we also have alternatives now that we didn't have previously. So suggesting that hydrocarbons are good just makes no sense to me. And the last thing I would say in terms of uh, innovation, yeah, of course, Nothing says that the U.S. can't continue to be innovative, except we have an administration in Washington that wants to change the rules of the game so that the incentives are to continue to do fossil fuels and there are disincentives for doing renewables, A, and B. How about slashing the budgets of the very agencies that provide so much of the innovative thinking in the United States, like our own NREL right there in Golden, Colorado. Yeah, what do you, what do you say to that? One of the leading places in the world for energy analysis and energy innovation, and that budget gets slashed. Why? Oh, well, you know, they don't work on coal. They don't work on fossil fuels. We don't need to fund them. So, sorry, this administration is killing off innovation. Amy Oliver-Cook, will you respond to that particular point? Yes, I will. I'd be happy to. Government is not the sole source provider, nor should it be, of innovation and research. You know what? By reducing budgets, you actually liberate science and research. Looking to government as the sole source provider, NREL is actually, what, aren't they, they're, um, I think, organized around a nonprofit, well, they're a federal wait, laboratory. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me finish. Let them fundraise. Let people, let the market do the research and development and come up with new technologies. That's how you avoid perverse incentives. Not yet ready for prime time technology that then gets out into a market because we forced it out and doesn't fare well. A bound solar and cylinder are prime examples of that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're digging into what the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris climate deal means for Colorado. And a quick fact check here. Enrol is a federal lab. It's also operated by a nonprofit called the Alliance for Sustainable Energy. My colleague Ryan Warner is joined by two guests. Amy Oliver Cook directs the Energy Policy Center at the Independence Institute in Denver. The group advocates for limited government. She also served on President Trump's transition team for the Environmental Protection Agency. Matt Applebaum is on the Boulder City Council. He used to be mayor there, and he was voice for cities at the 2015 talks that led to the Paris Accord. Matt, I want to say that mayors from nine Colorado cities have signed a climate pledge, essentially agreeing to hew to some of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I want to run through these communities in Colorado, Aspen, Boulder, Breckenridge, Denver, Edgewater, Lafayette, Lakewood, Longmont, and Vail. This represents, as we said, more than a million people here in Colorado. But what does it mean for a city to try to follow a global climate pact? Well, I think for a city, it's uh, cities in this space need goals. I mean, we need a target. We need, we need something to aim for so that we know what success looks like. And in Boulder's case, we've defined that pretty clearly. And it's not just long-term. By the way, the, the Paris Climate Agreement, just to be clear about this, did not mandate any sort of definitive reductions on the various nations that signed on to it. It basically said everybody gets to set their own 
requirements, their own goals, but you have to report out on your progress and what you're doing, the theory being that there would be, frankly, some good competition in terms of reaching reductions in in uh, carbon emissions and also pointing out the not-so-good players, the players who are not doing much. And so there really aren't, in this latest round, unlike Kyoto, there really aren't these definitive types of goals. There are some very general goals about, you know, keeping the parts per million of, of carbon in the atmosphere below a certain amount that we've probably reached already or darn close to almost reaching it. But for a city looking more locally, our goals are how do we reduce our carbon emissions given what is under our control? And that's a big issue. So in Boulder, you know, we look at all the places that we have carbon emissions. Most of it is electricity, unfortunately, and it's unfortunate because that's the part we have the least control over because, again, we are owned by the utility. We have no say whatsoever in terms of what their energy mix is. And so that is a difficulty for us. But within that, there is still some things we can do, encouraging people to put solar panels on their roof, encouraging people to insulate their houses better, use less energy, um, not just people, but businesses as well. We've got very strict building codes, probably the strictest in the United States. Uh, we work on transportation issues, uh, getting people out of polluting single occupant vehicles. So there is much cities can do, and there's much they can learn from each other, and that's where being part of kind of national and international consortiums can be very useful because we can learn from each other about what works, what gives you the best return on your investment, the best bang for your buck, where are the problem areas, um, and frankly, also in terms of just lobbying, getting coalitions together to, on this one point we agree on, lobbying the state legislature to allow for choice in Colorado, energy choice and competition in Colorado. Amy Oliver Cook, I just want to point to a new Washington Post ABC News poll uh, that says a majority of Americans disagree with the president's decision. 59% opposing the move to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, 28% in support. What do you make of that? Well, not having seen the article and only hearing a headline and not seeing the poll, I, it's hard for me to to be able to make an assumption one way or the other Um one of the things we found is that most of the polls leave out what the cost would be to the United States. During the campaign, then-candidate Trump was asked often about his stance on climate change, whether it is human-caused. And uh, this question has been raised again after the U.S. withdrawal from Paris. Perhaps the most direct sign we've seen in the aftermath came from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, who said President Trump believes the climate is changing and he believes pollutants are part of the equation. Amy, from your experience uh, on the EPA transition team, can you shed any more light on the administration's position on climate change? Well, I can't because I've never spoken to the president himself. I mm. mean, I, 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 you'll have to take whatever his words are. I... I I don't think that, I mean, from my perspective, I'll give you my perspective. As somebody who was on the EPA transition team, I was appointed to it, but I don't speak for any member. I don't think it's any news flash that 
climate changes. Colorado was much different 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. It's also complex. Uh, I think every living organism on the planet has some kind of impact on it. I think where we diverge is I don't think industrial wind is necessary and, and mandating it or subsidizing it is the answer to cleaning up the environment. I want to thank you both for being with us and walking through what the withdrawal might mean for Colorado. Thank you. Hey, thanks. That was fun. Amy Oliver Cook directs the Energy Policy Center at the Independence Institute in Denver, which advocates for limited government. She was also a member of President Trump's transition team for the EPA. Matt Applebaum is a Boulder city councilman and former mayor. He was a voice for cities at the 2015 Paris Climate Conference. The two spoke with Ryan Warner. Whatever Senate Republicans come up with to replace Obamacare could owe a lot to the work of one Colorado senator. Cory Gardner is among a small group of Republicans on Capitol Hill trying to craft a Senate version of a new health care law. They're trying to move quickly. Gardner says he hopes for a vote on reforms before the August recess. CPR's government reporter Allison Sherry has been talking to Senator Gardner about what he hopes happens with the bill. Allison, the House passed its health care bill back in May. It was supported by all of Colorado's House Republicans except Congressman Mike Kaufman. What does Senator Gardner think of it? Well, he has concerns. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office said the bill would leave 14 million people uninsured by next year. Gardner says the CBO report gave the Senate a few signals and is helping shaping their discussions. It gave us a little bit more uh, idea of, of what some of the policies they pursued in the House could mean. And uh, now that we've seen those, we can uh, start directing more uh, legislative efforts in terms of ideas the Senate has on tax credits, on market openings, on regulatory relief, get them, get a better idea of their scores, get a better idea of their coverage, and and get a better idea of how much it means to a, a more secure, more competitive marketplace. So do we have any idea yet how those ideas might translate into real policies? When I talked to him late last week, he wasn't ready to give many details, but here's a bit of what he would share. If you give people the chance to buy the insurance policy that they want, uh, they will buy that insurance policy. Uh, and let's make sure that we have that competitiveness that allows it to, ca- to happen, create a tax credit that is different from the House, that reflects better uh, the cost, the income, the age uh, of the recipient, the, the insured. Uh, let's do a better job of um, regulatory freedoms and giving the states more flexibility uh, to approve plans. That way we can start driving down costs. So there were a few specifics there. The Senate wants to create a more generous tax subsidy than what the House passed. Clearly, Gardner also has an appetite to roll back some of the rules on the, quote, essential benefits that were required under Obamacare. That would create options for cheaper plans, no doubt. But health care advocates say in the past such bare-bones plans carried risks because people bought them and then they were surprised to discover that they wouldn't cover full treatments of cancer or having a baby. Hmm. The Senate's working on its health care bill at a time when big changes are going on in the health insurance market. We reported earlier this week that Anthem may pull out of Colorado's health care exchange. That could leave some western Colorado counties with no exchange options. Did Gardner give any timeline for when the Senate will move on this? 
while Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has an incentive to try and move this through as quickly as possible, Gardner has said he was hoping for a vote before the August recess. Uh, He says he wants to move before the 2018 rate timelines are set so people can see the impact on their premiums next year. There is so much uncertainty right now in the markets. Politically speaking, it behooves Republicans to try and do something well before next year's midterm elections. Coloradans have a lot of opinions on this. I know groups in favor of Obamacare have been holding events every time Gardner's back in Colorado, and they want to pressure him not to change the law very much. What does Gardner say about the public response? He says he's been getting an earful from people on all sides. Some want Obamacare to stay the exact same. Others want to see changes. People want their premiums less expensive. People have ideas about the tax credits. I also talked to Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett about this. He's had a number of town halls. He had one in Fort Collins a few weeks ago where everyone was pretty much pressing him about health care. You may remember that Bennett worked with Republicans several years ago to pass comprehensive immigration reform in the Senate. It didn't end up going anywhere, but he wishes Senate Republicans would use that same model of bipartisan negotiation here. And he says there are problems with Obamacare that could be addressed. People are really worried about what the effect is going to be on them of having taken away what they now have. That's not to say they love the status quo. Nobody loves the status quo. I don't. I certainly don't. Gardner, too, said he hopes that this can be bipartisan effort, but the reporting out of Washington suggests it may even be hard to get all the Republicans on one page and that whatever this working group comes up with, which is made up of all Republicans, it's not likely to inspire Democratic votes. Remember, it's usually easier to be the party of no than the party in charge of governing. And now it's Republicans turn in that role. Allison, thanks for the update. You're welcome. That's CPR's government reporter, Allison Sherry. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Until five years ago, Boulder dentist Tom Bogan didn't know how to swim. He was afraid of drowning. Now he's won a spot in the most prestigious Ironman competition in the world. This fall, Bogan will compete in the Ironman World Championship on the big island of Hawaii. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. It's wonderful to be here in the CPR beehive to to speak with you about this. Well, your spot in the Hawaii competition is a wild card spot. Your name was picked at random out of some early entrance to the upcoming Ironman Boulder. Um, in December, the race director came into your office pretending to need a root canal and announced to you live on Facebook that you were one of the winners. You actually won, my friend. You won a slot to go to World Championships in Kailua, Kona. Awesome. Wow. You've got to be kidding me. How cool is You've that? You've got to be kidding. How cool is that? You have made my day. That's awesome. So you'll be racing some of the most elite Ironman competitors in the world, even though you're fairly new to this. Just briefly, what does the race consist of? Well, the race is uh, called an Ironman. It's a very tough, all-day-long competition. It involves uh, three disciplines. You have to first do a very long swim. Then you have to do a very long bike ride and follow it with a very long run. Uh, It totals 140.6 miles. Hmm. And it takes most people several hours before they'll ever get to the finish line. Uh, A lot of them uh, 
sometimes about 10, 15% of them never make it there. Do you get a break in between all that? There is no break. The time goes off when you enter the water and the clock is ticking the entire time. And your goal is to just keep on moving and get through this endurance event. Now, uh, you're 57. You'll be competing in your age bracket. Uh, How do you expect to do against your competitors? Well, I'm going to be against some very tough competition when I get to Hawaii. That's an event that is an invite only, and you have to prove you have some metal to get to that event. Uh, A lot of people will never get to that point. Uh, People try for years and never get the opportunity to do the race. I am very fortunate. I am very grateful. I am going to be one of the people that get a chance to compete with the best ones. I am probably not going to be uh, up in the sharp end of this race, though. I will be back in the pack, but rest assured, I'll be back there and I'll be pushing very hard. (laughs) And as we said, you had to learn to swim to compete. Uh, How did you conquer your fear of drowning? Well, that was a uh, huge effort in my life. I really never envisioned myself becoming a swimmer. Uh, My first trainer that I worked with when I went into the gym five years ago, about four months into the program, came up with the idea that maybe I should enter and try and complete a triathlon event. And I told him, no way, that's not going to happen. Stefan Stefan Swanson was my trainer. Uh, I can't swim. Uh, I just... uh, I'd go 50 yards and I'd be a body recovery for sure. There's no way I'm going to be able to swim out there that far. Where did your fear come from? I was uh, at a very young age. Uh, I fell into a pool in uh, South Boulder um, when my parents were there. And uh, I sucked in some water into my lungs. And I recall very vividly drawing water into my lungs rather than air a couple of cycles at least, and someone jumped in and pulled me out. It wasn't a near-drowning event, but it sure felt like it. And that played in my mind for years. And uh, I always felt like water is one place that I do not belong. And uh, uh, getting to the point where I could even think about learning how to swim was a very big challenge psychologically for me. And your trainer convinced you uh, to do this, to learn to swim. What's the first step um, in, you know, trying to conquer this kind of fear from childhood? Boy, there's just so many problems with it. Um, You know, finding the air when you need the air is the biggest thing that's on your mind. You you start becoming a survival problem with uh, with getting in the water. Uh, as you start learning to swim and you can swim one length and get to the other end and gasp for air once you get there, you start seeing that deep end coming and you start psychologically getting bothered by that. And it, it's, it's very tough for people that have uh, a hard time with this to do this. Um, and on top of it all, I sink like a stone. I found out that my body density is deep, uh, denser than water. Hmm. Um, I definitely am one of the people that do sink and they do exist. Hmm. Uh, those people have a very tough challenge learning how to swim, but it is possible to do it. How do you feel about swimming now? I love swimming now. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, I'm quite slow in my age group in my swimming. But uh, going out into the lake and swimming out there around those buoys that are seemingly miles offshore and coming back, uh, that's one of the biggest charges I get out of my events now. It's uh, my slowest part, but it's my most favorite part. 
I understand. I thought this was interesting. You struggled with getting into a regular exercise routine until you were in your early 50s. Now you're doing Ironman competitions. What changed? Uh, I I had a long uh, conversation with myself about five years ago over Christmas time and decided uh, every year I'm getting older, I'm getting a little bit more weight. Um, I'm I'm starting to have headaches all day long sometimes and I don't feel good. And I said to myself I, that you've got to change your ways. Uh, this pathway is the wrong one that you're on. And, you know, what's going to be next year or the year after that? And I, I said to myself, I think I'm ready to go in to the gym and try and work with a trainer. And I am ready to change the whole direction of my life. And I'd never want to go down this road anymore. I, I want to be in the best shape I've ever been in my life. And I was ready to commit to that. And you have to be ready to make that commitment because people walk in there in January every year. By the end of uh, March, they're all gone. Um, New Year's resolutions gone bad. That's exactly what happens. And those people have not made that choice in their mind. And that's the problem. If you make that choice, you will follow through. and, And now look where it's led me. And not only with swimming, but you had to learn to compete as a runner and a biker. Uh, when did you do your first Ironman? My very first Ironman was August 2nd, 2015 in Boulder. It was uh, the second year that the Boulder Ironman had been held. And uh, that was the year that I ran through the finish line. And they said, Tom Bogan, you are an Ironman at the finish line. Mm. And it's one of the greatest accomplishments of my life can imagine. And for those of us who have never done an Ironman before and never would, uh, what's it like? It's very hard to describe it unless you experience it. Uh, just all the build up to get there, all the, the hard work that's behind the scenes, the blood, sweat, and tears. Um, you knowing it that the event is coming is quite uh, a disturbing thing at times on your mind. And you're going, boy, I'm going to have to really perform one of these days coming soon. And then suddenly it's coming and it's on you and Mm. uh, you get there and you look around around with a little trepidation with all your other competitors and uh, you're going to experience one of the most incredible things you've ever experienced in your life at that point. And you get through that day and through that finish line and – it's it's very hard to describe the feeling of accomplishment that you get. The personal satisfaction is absolutely incredible. Do you have points along the race that you feel like giving up? You definitely have to face your demons out there on the course. There are times when you are going to be tested uh, how tough you want to be today. Uh, you, you will find uh, that you will have to find a solution to a problem that you didn't anticipate um, you're getting dehydrated. Your your leg is really starting to hurt. Uh, uh, you're starting to to have a, you know a food bunk. Mm. Um, you've got to really pay attention to a lot of things and concentrate on the effort and be sure that you can follow through and get it because it, it it will uh, it will not be smooth sailing at times. What's your finish time goal for the Boulder Ironman coming up this Sunday? This year, um, I'm hoping to get uh, well into the 12-hour range. Um, Deep 12-hour range is probably a realistic value for me this year. Um, I did a 40-minute personal record best last year. 
um, from my very first one. So I'm consistently seeing a big improvement at every race. And to see that at my age is really something else. I see it in my running. I see it in my biking. Uh, certainly my swimming, I see some as well. And uh, that's another one of the wonderful things about the sport. I understand you wear a wetsuit when you do Boulder, but you won't, you won't be able to wear one in Hawaii. And in Hawaii, you'll swim in the ocean, which could be rough. That'll be different from the Boulder race where you swim in the reservoir. How much will this play on your nerves? Well, it uh, certainly was a concern. And uh, when DC walked into my office uh, last December and announced that I was going to Hawaii, that was one of the things that quickly clicked into my mind because I do all of my events with wetsuits, which happen to give you a little bit of buoyancy, which in my case is very beneficial. <laughs> I um, will be doing the Kona Ironman, however, with a what's called a swim skin. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, uh, something I'm going to have to uh, do without the wetsuit. Tom, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I'm very uh, appreciative and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Well, we'll see how you do and would love to talk to you. <laughs> Tom Bogan races in Sunday's Ironman Boulder. This fall, he'll head to the Big Island of Hawaii to compete in the World Championship Ironman. After a break, another athlete challenging himself to extremes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Generation-defining is how Colorado's Tommy Caldwell described what a fellow rock climber did last weekend. Alex Honnold made his way up the granite face of El Capitan in Yosemite without ropes. That's higher than the tallest building in the world, climbing with just a little bag of chalk on his hip. Honnold is known for pushing the bounds of what even elite climbers like Caldwell normally think is possible. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with him a couple of years ago. He just released a best-selling memoir, Alone on the Wall. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You do what's called free soloing, which means no ropes, no partner, no safety net. It's you and the wall. And I'd like to start with how you got into that brand of climbing in particular. Well, just to be clear, the the free soloing is just a small portion of my total climbing. I mean, uh, I got into climbing in the in the climbing gym when I was a kid, and then spent you know eight or nine years climbing indoors, and then transitioned to the outdoors. But um, because it's so high consequence, I guess it also just requires a lot from you. You know, it requires a higher level of focus. It just requires a higher level of commitment, and so I find it just more rewarding. Though I wouldn't, you know, it's not something I'd want to do all the time. Yeah. But, you know, from time to time, it's definitely a more powerful experience, I guess. Do you like that you're alone when you do it, that that it's more isolated? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of the appeal. I mean, just being in, it, it's always in beautiful places. Like you're having a really meaningful experience by yourself in a beautiful place. You're sometimes hanging off a wall, held on only by a few fingers or toes. But does it feel safer to you than it may appear to an observer on the ground? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a big part of soloing for me is to take something that like looks crazy or, you know, looks insane and then to make it feel totally comfortable. I mean, a big part of it is to take something that that seems really dangerous and make it feel safe. So, I mean, everything that I've done, I feel really comfortable while I do it and I feel safe. You know, it's just looking at it from the outside. You're like, that seems insane. But from the inside, it feels totally 
totally fine. And that's in part because you have some control over the circumstances. And um, it's funny, it comes out in this book that you've had bigger scares driving uh, than climbing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also have a lot of control over my preparation and my training and, you know, all the things that go, you know, before a big solo. I mean, there's there's a lot that a lot that goes into it. I mean, I've been climbing, you know, five days a week for 20 years. It's like a lot of a lot of training, really. Um, whereas other aspects of life, you have a lot less control, like say driving where like random things just happen and it's just sheer chance. The book includes essays you've written over the years about various climbs. And at some points you describe yourself as genuinely nervous. Um, you consider abandoning an attempt in Yosemite and almost not getting on the wall at all in Southern Mexico. Um, what would you say your limits are? I'm not sure. I mean, I guess my limits are just my hard and fast rules if I look up at something and and I'm filled with fear, then I probably shouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of th- – there have been many routes over the years where I start up it and I decide that it's just not my day or, or I just, like, can't get into the into the groove and then I just climb back down and, and call it. I mean, I think in general if I look up at something and it seems terrifying, then then obviously it's not not for me. Hmm. But you you must deal with some fear that you get past. In other words, it's – I suppose it's maybe the difference between fear and terror. <laughs> well, or no, it's more like the difference between anxiety or nervousness. Because the thing is, even the things that I'm well prepared for and I know that I can do, I still feel a little bit of like anxiety, I guess, or or maybe just nervousness. Or it's hard to say, you know, but just some kind of like nervous energy just because I'm doing something for the first time that's never been done. And so there's still just like some uncertainty involved there. But if I look up at it and feel genuine fear or like deep-seated terror or whatever you want to call it, then that's like an unhealthy level and then then I probably should prepare more, I suppose. Maybe it's a, a warning of some kind. Yeah, exactly. So Boulder-based Sender Films has captured a lot of your climbs. And um, it's it's funny that sometimes you'll watch that footage and your palms will start to sweat to, to watch yourself do this kind of climbing. Yeah, that's just a credit to their filmmaking, you know. <laughs> and certainly to your climbs, at least somewhat. Uh, yeah. At least one of your sponsors decided last year that the the risk of you falling was too great. So Cliff Bar dropped its sponsorship uh, of you and four other athletes. You wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, largely hailed as gracious, in which you said, quote, It did seem odd that after years of support, someone at Cliff Bar seemed to have awakened suddenly and realized that climbing without a rope on vertical walls as high as 2,000 feet is dangerous. Still, I couldn't help but understand their point of view. Um, One of the other athletes who was dropped died six months later in a base jumping accident, uh, essentially parachuting off a cliff. Uh, Dean Potter was a friend of yours. I wonder if that's changed your outlook on Cliff Barr's decision at all? I mean, it hasn't changed my outlook. I mean, I suppose that sort of validates uh, Cliff Barr's point of view a little bit. But, um, I mean, as soon as they dropped us, I mean, you know, it's a private company that can do whatever they feel is, is justified. You know, obviously, I don't agree, and, and I'm going to continue to climb the way that I see fit. But, you know, if they're not into that, then then I totally understand. And, and Dean's accident certainly shows that, I mean, there is risk involved in what we're doing. Did it make you take a second look at, at your own sport, at the precautions you take or anything? Um, not a ton. I mean, Dean's death certainly made me reflect on you know, my choices in life and mortality and all those things. I mean, the same way anybody thinks about those kinds of things when like a family member dies or like if anybody close to them dies, I mean, it's always a good time to think about, you know, the choices that you're making in life and what you're doing. 
But um, I mean, I've I decided years ago that I would never get into base jumping or wingsuiting, and I mean that's that's how Dean died. And so, you know, obviously I stand by that choice that for me personally, um, you know, base jumping is not worth the risk. But for him, it's, you know, I mean, it was a meaningful part of his life and that's the way he chose to to live, you know. Uh, you train in Boulder sometimes with friends. You call it the thick of the climbing scene. Um, but Yosemite is <laughs> your, your favorite place to climb. I'm thinking of you up on the wall of Half Dome, I don't know, with like a tourist peering over the edge or... You know, you passing someone climbing with ropes. What kinds of looks do you get? And and does it shake your concentration <laughs> at all? <laughs> uh, it normally doesn't shake my concentration too much. But, um, it. I mean, I do have some classic anecdotes from passing parties. Actually, I mean, I think the most classic is uh, I've come up on parties before and had, had the, the belayer. Like when I catch up to somebody, they say like, oh, you can't pass, um, which is sort of – reasonable if you have ropes on, you know, because like whoever's there first sort of has the right of way. Hmm. But if you don't have a rope, you know, you're kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just like hang here and, and wait for you guys. <laughs> you know, you're like, I think I'm just going to pass. You know, you're like, I'll just do my thing. You guys don't worry about it. Your dad passed away during uh, the one year you spent in college. You later dropped out and you write about anger as a motivator. Quote, there's a rich vein in mountaineering literature of climbers using dark thoughts and stormy moods to precipitate cutting edge climbs, especially solos. Did your dad's death have something to do with choosing this path of free soloing, of pushing the sport to what even some of your friends fear is a, is a dangerous extreme? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, if if I got anything from dad's death, it was more just, you know, a realization that that we only have one life and you have to lead it, you know, as well as as well as you can. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, that quote about uh, dark thoughts has more to do with like relationship angst and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, like, you know, getting all upset about a girl or something and then going out and soloing things. Um, <laughs> channeling, yeah. that, channeling that energy. Yeah, exactly. It's all about like harnessing your motivation and using it to do the things that you've always wanted to do. Do you see yourself married and having someone worry constantly about you? Well, presumably if I marry somebody, it's they're not going to be a worrier, you know. Um, yeah, I, I could see being married someday, but um, certainly not to somebody who, who stresses about things like that. Yeah, they, they would have to be uh, accustomed to this life. I want to talk a bit about your life away from the wall. You've started a foundation helping fight poverty in part by funding solar projects in developing countries on Indian reservations and for low-income housing uh, in Colorado. What inspired you to do that? Well, so I was, I mean, through my climbing, I've been on expeditions all over the world. And so that sort of opened my eyes to, you know, the, the billion people living on Earth with like no access to power and, you know, just mired in poverty, basically. In the, in the book, I um, I describe an expedition to Chad that I went on in 2010 in uh, Central Africa. You know, at the time, it wasn't I wouldn't even really have realized it, but um, but that trip really like sank in, and like over the years, you know, I've sort of absorbed it more, and that was sort of the beginning of me feeling like I needed to to do something, you know, positive for the world, or at least try. And part of it just has to do with the fact that, you know, as I've become more well known as a climber, I suddenly have more opportunity to to help. I mean, because I'm still living in a car and I have pretty much no overhead, you know, I can, I'm suddenly making quite a bit more money than I need. So it's easy for me to donate, you know, like a third of my income to, to environmental projects like this. And how is life in that Econoline van? It's, uh, you know, it's glamorous. It's super nice. <laughs> um, I, I can't stand up is the only complaint. But otherwise, it's pretty nice. Everything's within arm's reach. It makes for a very easy living. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Rock climber Alex Honnold spoke with Ryan Warner in 2015 about his memoir, Alone on the Wall. Honnold just completed one of the hardest climbs ever when he scaled Yosemite's El Capitan without ropes. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.